The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday the 1st of July and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy and I'm standing, or rather sitting in this week, for Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, we'll look at the first few days of the government and ask, has it been derailed by controversy over ministerial appointments? We talk to Kevin Cunningham, a lecturer at the UCD School of Politics, a former targeting and analysis manager for the UK Labour Party, and according to his Twitter bio, chief panic spreader, whether it's time to panic or relax about the easing of travel restrictions in relation to COVID-19. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Fiak. Fiak, I'm going to talk to you first, just before we talk about the uh, first few days of the government. This story that is running at the moment uh, about the funeral of Bobby Story in Belfast yesterday and the apparent lack of social distancing practised by the various Sinn Féin figures and the crowds that were at it. It seems to be gaining a bit of traction last night and today. Is this a, becoming a bit of a problem for Sinn Féin? I think it is because it was such an ostentatious flaunting of the rules regarding, you know, funerals, gatherings in Northern Ireland. You had people from across the divide in Northern Ireland last night out condemning it from the DUP to the UUP to Alliance to the SDLP. And it was so brazen, uh, I think it, it, it kind of jarred with a lot of people. And we don't have to look too far to see families have had to bury loved ones in very restricted circumstances over the last three to four months. People have had to stay away from funerals of people they consider themselves very close to because they weren't allowed to go. And then you have what seemed like the entire Sinn Féin leadership basically thumbing their nose at those rules and gathering in significant numbers for the funeral of Bobby Story, marching together. Streets of West Belfast were packed. Very few people wearing masks uh, from the look of it. And no, I, like, I think the problem with it is they surely must have known that this was going to be a point of discussion after this, but didn't care. Like someone surely along the line felt maybe this wouldn't look too good. And I think it puts a significant hole into the Sinn Féin argument that they are the tribunes of the people versus the, you know, as we saw in the convention center on Saturday, the elites stitching the power up for themselves well, here is a blindingly obvious example where those other parties can say, look, it's one rule for you guys and another for the rest. And this followed on from Saturday where there was a bit of controversy about the fact that Michelle O'Neill travelled down to Dublin for the sitting of the doll, while Michal Martin's family stayed in Cork because they were adhering to the travel restrictions that were in place on Saturday but were lifted on Monday. So it has not been a good few days on that front for Sinn Féin. And I think the, it speaks to that, what critics of republicanism will say, that it's, 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 it's their rule and they, they, they abide by it. Like, and I'm watching some Twitter traffic on it last night where people were criticising and people were you know, saying back, well, the Republicans first and foremost. Well, that is precisely why many people object to Sinn Féin being in government because they see themselves as Republicans first and foremost and the state or the rules may follow after that. Kevin, uh, amongst uh, 
many other fields. You're an expert on UK politics. Um, do you think this could be kind of a sort of a Dominic Cummings sort of problem for Sinn Féin? As in, as Fiac says, one rule for the elite and uh, another rule for everybody else. Well, Fiac is is right that Sinn Féin does appeal to the real people, a populist vote. And from that perspective, one could argue that Sinn Féin would be damaged by this. However, I'm not quite sure if this is equivalent to the Dominic Cummings incident. The UK, certainly at that time, uh, it was at the height of the lockdown and uh, the situation in the UK was quite severe at that particular point in time. I'm not sure if it is equivalent now. Um, but the other thing is obviously that uh, Sinn Féin is not necessarily in government, so they are not uh, directing the rules of which they need to adhere to. Um, Dominic Cummings was obviously part of the decision making, which would have an impact on perceptions of, you know, one rule for, for you guys. And, and then I'm not going to do the same thing myself. OK, Fiek, I want to move on to the first few days of uh, the new government formed on Saturday. By Sunday, there was already controversy over the appointment of Dara Kaliri as uh, chief whip and not to a full cabinet post in charge of a department like his colleagues. Um how damaging that ran again all day Monday, really. And there was the further question of no full minister being appointed from the Connacht Ulster region. How damaging has that been for the government? The sense, the sense I have got from the government in its first few days, which I find difficult to understand, is very much not of an administration that is hitting the ground running, that had things planned for its first announcements planned, a developments planned for its first couple of days to project an idea of forward momentum. That's the sense I get. Um, what's, what, what's your sense and how damaging do you think the Kaliri controversy has been? I think it didn't get the government off to a good start. The fact that the entire Western seaboard is now without a senior ministerial representative, such an obvious, you know, problem. And the Taoiseach, or sorry, the Taoiseach, excuse me, as he is now in the doll yesterday, saying it's pretty much because they didn't consult with each other. Now, we know that, you know, individual appointments are matters for party leaders themselves, but you would think that there'd be some sort of tic-tacking about. You know, I heard Bertie Hearn on the radio yesterday saying himself and Mary Harney used to consult the night before. Clearly, that uh, that level of trust between these three parties in this government isn't yet in place that they feel that they can tell each other who they're going to appoint a cabinet or confide in each other about who they're going to pick. Didn't get off to a great start, but uh, I just wonder how much this idea of a minister in the constituency applies anymore. The last election saw Regina Doherty, outgoing minister for social protection, lose her seat. Shane Ross lose his seat. Like the days of a, a minister, you know, throwing bounty all over the constituency. Enda Kenny flung projects at Mayo for years and still turned around and like, you know, slapped them in the face in 2016. So does it, does it really matter anymore? Like, does it matter that it matters in the sense that it will be used as a stick to beat the government with by the Independence Alliance, by people on the West Coast to say the West has been left out. But it is damaging, but is it the be-all and end-all it's made to be? I'm not quite sure. Have we moved past? Have we kind of matured as a, as a political audience, if that's correct? That we, we, did, did voters look with scepticism on this idea that the big minister come down the road and the Merck is there to shower money out the window? I'm not sure that's still a feature of Irish politics anymore. 
maybe with the media. Yeah, it seems to me that this is unlikely to be a long-term problem, but it certainly has been a, a short-term disruption and distraction for the government. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm surprised that they haven't had a more obvious programme over the early days to demonstrate forward momentum. Um, Instead, they've been on the back foot uh, dealing with this ministerial controversy, which, I mean, must have been, I suppose we could debate the merits of localism in Irish politics until we were blue in the face. But anybody looking at that cabinet in advance with a knowledge of how Irish politics works would have said, hold on, you could be in a bit of trouble here. And I wonder, did Hall Martin and the collective leadership of the government simply say, well, you know, we you know, we're willing to we're willing to risk that to nominate the cabinet that we want? Or was it kind of a blunder that was done half by accident? I think, I suspect more the former than the latter, because for this reason, if you look at on like the, the pre, you know, ministerial appointment speculation, there was always a risk that Fine Gael was not going to appoint a senior minister for the West. It was always an either or between Hildegard Nocton and Helen McEntee as the senior minister, with the other being the junior so if you're a Fianna Fáiler, you're looking at that going, well, you know, there's no guarantee that they're going to pick someone for the West. So maybe we should mind our own shop. And I expect that there was an element of, you know, this might cause us difficulty, but we're willing to take the hit. Because what Michal Martin did on Saturday, to me, seemed like someone who's decided, I'm here for two and a half years. I want to get as much done as I can in that period and put the best people I believe in the positions I need them in and damn the consequences because this needs to happen and it needs to happen quick. So I think on the Fianna Fáil side, they probably certainly weighed up the fact that this could cause them difficulty. The Fine Gael side, I'd imagine they just assumed Dara Cleary was going to be in there because the deputy leader should be in, like they would have saw it as the deputy leader should be in a senior ministerial position and perhaps that informed their decision to appoint Helen McEntee as a senior rather than Hildegard Nocton. But the Fianna Fáil side, I think it was, this is what we're doing and damn the consequences. Whatever the exact turn of events, they seem to be taking a more cautious approach to the appointment of the junior ministers, um, which are due, we think, today, but there doesn't seem to be any definitive uh, definitive word on that. My understanding last night was that it was intended that the lineup would be completed last night. There would be an incorporeal cabinet meeting to appoint them today, and uh, they'd be announced this evening. But the list wasn't completed last night between the, the, the party leaders. Um, they're going to have to meet again today or at least be in contact to finalise their selections. So it does seem a greater degree of caution. And I suppose looking at the, the lists and we've a piece in speculating about possible appointments in today's paper, um, the three party leaders have the, particularly the leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have the old problem in such matters. They've got, you know, too many mouths to feed. Too many mouths to feed. You know, the knock-on effect of the cabinet appointments was being felt uh, by the junior ministerial uh, aspirants, I suppose, on Saturday, because they're watching as well. So someone in the Midwest might look at the cabinet appointments on Saturday and go, that's me totally goosed because Norma Foley is the minister for Kerry now. She's minding that particular slot. But I think further up the Western seaboard, if you're a TD there, you're, you're, 
your prospects were significantly enhanced by what's happened over the last few days. So like John McHugh, you would think would get a, a junior minister. He's got to be a banker now, doesn't he? Even Michael Ring from the persecuted county of Mayo might Michael, survive. Well, I'm he? not sure about that one because he actually, apparently, apparently, he had his own councillors lobbying other councillors around the country to lobby their TDs to get him appointed to junior ministerial ranks, which is some convoluted way of lobbying, but I'm not sure it was being looked upon with much favour by the party hierarchy. But you would think that Charlie McConnell would be quids in as well now for Fianna Fáil. Donegal again, close to Micheál Martin. So anyone along that again. Western yeah. corridor would fancy their chances. And perhaps that does include Michael Ring, you're, you're right. Anne Rabbit, you know, overlooked on Saturday, Galway East. She, you would have to think she's a banker now too. And if you were someone who was on the East Coast, you know, hoping for preferment, might go against you now. Like you're looking at the Dublin ministers, Josepha Madigan, I think, you know. It's unlikely there'll be anybody else from Corks out Central no, certainly or not. from Greystone. Or from, like, and then you look at, like, no, Jack Chambers may have wanted a, a promotion, but can you have three ministers from Dublin West? Josepha Madigan has pretty much been assured that she's getting one, we understand. So that takes the, like, south side of Dublin out. Uh, is there anyone else who can be appointed? Maybe Jennifer Carl McNeil because they need female rep. Jennifer Carl McNeil they female. mentioned in dispatches. And then you go to the Midlands. Yeah. Uh, so you would think from a Fine Gael perspective, you'd have to say Peter Burke would be a frontrunner there in Longford Westmead and he will be watching anxiously to see if his constituency colleague, Robert Troy in Fianna Fáil gets one and you would think he would too. But as, you, as pointed out in the paper by yourself this morning, Pat, when you run down the numbers, suddenly you realise that a lot of people are going to be disappointed again. Yeah, they've got they've got they've got eight eight appointments each uh, to make, given and uh, seven appointments really, each really seven. because they've got they've they've appointed their their super juniors already. So um, it is uh, it gets it gets very tight very quickly for both of them. And I suppose the old Bertie Ahern. You mentioned them earlier, but the Bertie Ahern rule of reshuffles is that uh, you make you make more enemies uh, than friends in a reshuffle because invariably the people who are appointed think it is down to their uh, their abilities and talents that have them there, and uh, the people who you leave out uh, blame you personally for leaving them out. Indeed, and this is the first time Leo Varadkar has gone through that process because he had an unrealistic amount of ministries to hand out when he took over as Taoiseach in 2017. Like, you know, there, there wasn't anyone really in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party who didn't have a job, bar a very unlucky few. And that has changed dramatically. He now has a much restricted uh, room for manoeuvre. Micheál Martin uh, is the same. I think what's happening in, in the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party at the moment is the old guard who were there from 2011 are looking on. And I, that's if there's to be trouble in Fianna Fáil, I expect that's where it would be. People who feel that they have been there in the darkest days for the party and now may not get a job. So if you're looking at someone like Noel Collins, does he get a job today? A lot of people in the party think he should, but has he fallen out of favour with Micheál Martin? Apparently he has. So these are enemies that you're, that you're going to make. Does Jim O'Callaghan take a job? Is he going to be offered one? Is he, if he's offered one, does he say yes? These are all dynamics that will play out over the next few days. And if he doesn't, what, in saying he's not going to take one, what does that say? I'm going to stew on the back benches and cause trouble for the next two and a half years. Like this is the last kind of, kind of, you know, this is the last shaking of the, 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 the snow globe today. And then after that, everything will settle and there'll be little pockets of resistance in both parties to what their leaders do. Mm. It's a consequence, of course, you know, the, the reduction in the number of ministers available to, to Fine Gael uh, is, is a consequence of this realignment of, of, uh, of politics. And the other, I suppose, on the other side of the, uh, the Dáil chamber, 
things are realigned uh, as well, Kevin, with the, um, the the clear emergence of Sinn Féin as the leader of the opposition. Um, like all the like all the top people, you have a, a chapter in the forthcoming uh, book uh, called "How Ireland Voted," which is produced after every general election. And your your chapter concentrates on the performance of Sinn Féin and the Sinn Féin vote. First of all, how, how do you think Sinn Féin are going to perform in opposition? And second of all, what does your research tell you? What does it tell you about the Sinn Féin voter? Could you characterise the Sinn Féin voter for us? So, uh, firstly, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that I know lots of people talk about how being in government is very important and obviously to try and do things, it is important. But opposition does matter. Uh, if you look at the UK, I just want to make this one point at the start. If you look at the UK, the reason why Brexit occurred was because there was a rising opposition in UKIP in 2013-2014 where that party effectively made up the kind of middle ground of British politics and that drove the decision to have uh, a Brexit referendum. Then subsequently, the 2017 uh, UK general election, uh, the Tories had what was described by the Comparative Manifesto Project as the most left-wing conservative manifesto since 1964. That was clearly defined not by uh, the Tories themselves, but by this threat of a very left-wing Labour Party. So opposition does shape government. I think we need to set aside the idea that the opposition can go off and do what they do uh, independently and don't influence. There is no government that is so popular that it can ignore uh, the opposition. Uh, Irish governments... Uh, in in the past have almost all declined in support and only one Irish government has got over 50% support. So on average, governments tend to lose uh, on average uh, 4%. So, you know, but some recently have have lost a lot more. So they will be influenced by what's going on with Sinn Féin. And the Sinn Féin vote uh, is effectively an economically... Uh, disaffected vote. Um, the they dominate uh, low income groups uh, since the election. In fact, they've started to gain even further ground in uh, the working class vote. Uh, lots of people who were previously uninterested in politics have now engaged with it and have started to vote for Sinn Fein. There's a particular group that probably didn't get much attention previously, which is the kind of non Dublin uh, working class vote. Uh, which uh, Sinn Féin is hoovering up. At whose expense is that coming? Uh, primarily Fianna Fáil over, over time. If you look at the polls today and go back one year's time, the difference is Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin have basically swapped places in terms of their vote share. Uh, certainly if you go back to the election, it would look like, okay, Fianna Fáil have, gained, have lost directly to Fine Gael, but lots of stuff have, has happened since the most recent general election. But in terms of overall net loss and gain of vote, quite a lot of it has come from that historical Fianna Fáil base. But these voters are have, have uh, relatively low incomes, but they also are um, feel that their income uh, has declined significantly over the last year. They feel that the government has performed relatively poorly and then they see corruption um, in, in lots of different places. Fianna Fáil, the remainder of Fianna Fáil, is basically a hodgepodge after uh, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin have kind of scavenged at it, basically. Um, but the, those, those, these uh, Sinn Féin voters are distinctly uh, ec- uh, economically uh, disadvantaged. And that, that's kind of the undercurrent of it all. I remember after the 
uh, recent general election, uh, a survey came out which suggested that the Sinn Féin voters were the most likely to prefer tax cuts over public spending. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but... That doesn't sound very left-wing to me. No, exactly. But that, that, was the, uh, that was one of the findings in the exit poll, which is quite prominent. And I certainly thought that that was unusual at the time. Um, it, what, what, if you dig a little bit deeper, what happens to be the case is that the Sinn Féin voter is either, one, is either on one extreme or the other extreme in terms of tax cuts or public spending. But if we think about that question, it presumes that the fiscal space, as we might think of it, is fixed, where these voters might think, well, why can't you just expand the economy? Why can't you spend more and not have to tax me to do so? So that's probably the perspective that they're in, because these people are uh, relatively disadvantaged. The Fine Gael vote um, has become more middle class, has become more, um, uh, they've, they've gained more in the higher incomes. They're basically the opposite of the Sinn Féin vote. And those two parties arguably could play off one another um, uh, as, as people who say, well, I'll never vote for Fine Gael and the largest opposition party is Sinn Féin, or I'll never vote for Sinn Féin and the largest, opposition, and the largest party on the other side is Fine Gael. The only thing I think that goes against this now is the fact that I think, to my mind, just uh, what Fiek was saying, er- t- t- saying earlier in, re- in relation to uh, government formation and the coalition, I think Fianna Fáil have actually played their cards relatively well uh, because I think what Fianna Fáil definitely needs is visibility and taking the housing and health ministries guarantees that visibility. Um, and I would assume that that would have been uh, at the forefront of their mind. How do they maximise visibility? Fine Gael perhaps are trying to avoid uh, any further criticism and so perhaps it suits both parties to have Fianna Fáil uh, taking charge of the two ministries that uh, people were most critical and most focused on uh, in the last electoral cycle. Fiek, there's an awful lot riding for Fianna Fáil on those two ministries and on the, the two ministers, uh, Stephen Donnelly in health and Darrell O'Brien in housing that occupy those or that those portfolios or lead, lead those departments. And both of them are certainly untried in government and were, I don't know, is it fair to call them kind of solid rather than spectacular in opposition? Yeah, I think, you know, you've heard that criticism within Fianna Fáil itself in the last few days that neither man, I think it's fair to say, had a stellar outing in the general election campaign itself. Um, you know, particularly there were a couple of broadcast debates on Clareburn Live and Primetime, I think, where the two of them were probably deemed to have been outperformed by both their Sinn Féin and Fine Gael counterpart. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of criticism in particular of the Fianna Fáil housing policy on the election manifesto. You know, my understanding is some putative potential partners like smaller parties went into Micheál Martin and told them that after the election when they were trying to stitch together a government. A lot is riding on them now. I think Micheál Martin's point of view, what he has said is that he wants people who are going to hit the ground running. So it goes back to what we talked about, of him having a limited time in the Taoiseach's department. And he doesn't seem to want to allow someone who's not on top of these briefs or not au fait with these briefs a couple of months to read in because they don't have that as the way he says it. They have two and a half years leading this government. Kevin's right. They need a few visible wins. They need their people out front and centre. So I I think what you're likely to see is a large drive from government buildings itself 
towards delivery by the Fianna Fáil ministers. So it may not be the case that, like, say, for example, in a government where the lead party has 10 ministers or 11 ministers, I would, I would expect that you'd see government building sitting on a couple of ministers. And I wouldn't be surprised if those two are the recipients of extra love from Michal Martin's office in the next two years. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm not sure that's how they will see it. Um, but there, there is at a at a deeper level. Just going back to what what Kevin was saying there about Sinn Fein and Fine Gael forming the two poles of of Irish politics. There is a worry for Fianna Fáil, isn't there? In that regard, and I know Jerry uh, Howland and the Irish Examiner has written about this a, a couple of times that. If there is a an emerging left right government opposition divide in Irish politics, then it would seem that Fine Gael is more likely to dominate the right or the the centre right, Sinn Fein the left, and you'd wonder where that leaves Fianna Fáil. And I think yeah, you're right. Fine Gael has clearly taken a conscious decision that they are going to play that opposition to Sinn Féin like you just have to look back at Saturday's sitting in the convention centre when all was very nice and then Leo Varadkar got in this preemptive dig to Sinn Féin on the nomination of Michal Martin as Taoiseach you're going to hear a lot about change you're going to hear a lot about spin spin Féin so I think yeah I yeah, there are some in Fine Gael who see this government as a kind of a black widow type effort that they'll go in with Fianna Fáil but gradually decide that, you know, they will take over the leader of the government as is going to happen, but they will become the dominant drivers of the political conversation in opposition to Sinn Féin towards the latter half of this government's term of office. And you're seeing that already. And then the quandary Fianna Fáil are in is what, where does that leave them? Where do they position themselves? How do they sell themselves in the middle of this bitter, I suppose, back and forth we're going to see towards the back end of this government between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin? You probably see it in the first half as well. But we already know that there are large sections of Fianna Fáil who would like to talk to Sinn Féin. I would be surprised if Shin, uh, Michal Martin's outright opposition to, to Fianna Fáil survived another, uh, Sinn Féin survived another Fianna Fáil leader. So what happens in that situation? Will they be strong enough to be the lead party of the next government or do they become, you know, the junior party to either Sinn Féin or Fine Gael can't hop between the two? Is that their future? Kevin, those those voters on the left, many of whom voted for uh, Sinn Féin in in the last election, is it is it the case that the electorate is now just more left wing than it used to be? And if so, how loyal are those voters likely to be to Sinn Féin? Are they bedded down Sinn Féin voters now, or could they go could they go elsewhere? Well. In terms of the uh, the emergence of the left, I guess, the, there is a 40-year a trend where the Fianna Fáil plus Fine Gael vote uh, has declined uh, on average every five years, if you imagine uh, a five-year government term, by about 4% per, per, per five years over that 40 years uh, steadily. That's a period in which, uh, just to contextualise this, that 40 years is the period bookended by basically the referendums on abortion. But... It's a period in which Ireland has become uh, much more educated in terms of the number of people with uh, third-level education, uh, in which uh, net emigration has become net net immigration, uh, in in, in which uh, it's become more urbanised. Ireland has very much changed, and and, and that change has given rise to the decline of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and invariably a rise of a kind of a more distinctive uh, left. Distinctive, but still very fractured. Well, it, it, it is fractured, but I mean, the, the, 
I wouldn't say it's as fractious as I think it's the most consolidated than it's ever been, uh, certainly at this point in time, because Sinn Féin is very much a distinctive left wing party. It's, it's the voters recognize it as a left wing party and identify it as such. And we've never had a, a party on that level of support kind of as consistently um, until now. Uh, so I think they will get uh, loyalty. Of course, when a left wing party goes into government, it can't ever uh, completely do exactly what all its voters want, because the voters that support it are very, very disadvantaged. And essentially what a lot of them would like would be the entire society to be turned upside down, which is probably not possible. So uh, they probably will be as loyal to the party as long as that party is outside uh, government Party ID, uh, a measure of how people are generally loyal to political parties, is certainly lower than it has ever been. Um, but Sinn Féin have shown uh, an ability to create uh, people who are uh, very loyal to the party. You see a sort of resurgence of party ID in lots of different countries at the minute, where people are uh, very, very uh, partisan about their party support. And I think it's quite possible that Sinn Féin could... Um, you know, I, I uh, win uh, a lot of votes uh, among these voters. So there's one other point uh, I think it's worth making, just in relation to, it kind of harks back to the point about government uh, ministers. Uh, and one of the developments you see in a lot of countries is that areas that are in serious decline are the areas where people are uh, going towards populist parties, Donald Trump, Brexit, whatever. Um, we do have that same sort of situation in Ireland. Uh, they currently are voting for uh, Sinn Féin now, um, but the selection of government ministers primarily from urban areas of Dublin and Cork, um, the reason why that, I think, is more problematic is not because, uh, you know, of the idea that people, uh, the ministers might give, uh, you know, pork to their constituents, as might have been the case previously, but because of this kind of emerging divide between and people in the small towns of Ireland, which are in serious decline, quite a large number of people uh, in a recent poll I did uh, suggested that their area was in serious decline and uh, people who live in, in Dublin in particular. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive difference, really. Um, and I think that's something that Sinn Féin is probably leveraging as well in all this. You know, it's, 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 it's something that the far right has le have leveraged in lots of other contexts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that to you know one has to have anti-immigrant policies to actually appeal to these people, but it's the it's this sense of a decline of community that um, these voters are, are are looking for, and that's why in in, in these areas it's uh, it's different, I guess. Vic, there's obviously a huge political opportunity for Sinn Fein as the leaders of the opposition. Um, but there's also increased scrutiny comes with that. And we see the, you know, we see that with the subject we discussed earlier with the Bobby Story funeral, but also some controversy over the weekend about Sinn Féin nominee for mayor of South Dublin County Council, Paddy Hoolan, a man who said some uh, previously disagreeable things and was, uh, was, was suspended by the party for five months. So th they are going to get more scrutiny, I think. And... I wonder if if much of the party might find that a little uncomfortable. I suspect they will, but I'm, 
on one level, they have been subject to intense scrutiny for the last couple of years anyway because of the past, the IRA past, the Republican past. That has always been an issue which they have been subjected to serious scrutiny. I think perhaps where there may be increased scrutiny, although there was some already, is on their policy offering. So they are an opposition party, but what is their alternative policy offering? I think that is where you may see the dynamic change um, because they were you know, a second party of opposition up until the recent election. They were previous to that, you know, seen as, you know, a kind of loud, shouty opposition party. If you remember in the lead up to the 2011 general election campaign, when Eamon Kilmore was making significant hay from the opposition benches as being that, you know, very loud opposition leader, then the Labour Party came under greater scrutiny on their policy offering. So I think that may apply to Sinn Féin as well. Like I think, they, in fairness, they have been, you know, pretty much under the microscope in the last few years over the Republican past and how they deal with those issues. Bullying was another one. So I think in the policy mm-hmm. area, yes, but I think there's, there's not much scope for greater scrutiny on the other, on the other issues, being honest. Okay. Um, uh, Kevin, I want to move on um, to, to COVID-19, which is, of course, one of the pressing questions facing the new government about the attitude it takes towards the easing of travel restrictions uh, and, and, and the preparations for for uh, a second wave, if that's um, if that's what comes, you were quite critical of the last government back in February, March about its tardiness in locking down. You based that, I think, at the time on your reading of the data on the spread of the disease elsewhere. What's your view on the potential opening up? to foreign travel and the broader opening up that's taking place at the moment? In relation to uh, support and opposition to the government, um, we can come back to this kind of rally round the flags effect where uh, support for governing parties right across Europe has increased in the context of the coronavirus. As uh, it's suggested in the literature, this is a function of fear and people looking to strong leadership in a time when they're in an international crisis. Uh, the literature also suggests that the scale of this rally is a function of uh, public criticism. So the more critical uh, the public is around the issue, the, the more likely that the rally will wear off. And that's particularly around opposition politicians. Uh, you can see how in the US, uh, the rally for Boris Johnson lasted barely a week. For Boris Johnson, it lasted maybe a month, perhaps as a function of how the situation in the UK was, was relatively uh, poor, um, I guess. Uh, it's important to see that when we look at the Irish situation that the government or at least the politicians kind of stepped away and allowed the chief medical officer to kind of take centre stage. Now, that obviously uh, ensures that it's it's a little bit more difficult, obviously, for people of opposition politicians to criticise the chief medical officer, um, especially given the relative expertise and, and how that might be uh Understood. I remember for myself, at least, uh, when I observed in early March the, the uh, public debate on Channel 4 between a Californian entrepreneur, Thomas Puyo, and uh, John Edmonds, the kind of eminent epidemiologist. Now, John Edmonds is obviously a very, very bright and, and probably right about a lot of things, but it, it turned out he was wrong about the approach to herd immunity. Um, but that was not how the public received this debate. They basically looked at a Californian epidemiologist and decided, well, that guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about relative to, obviously, you would trust, any rational person would trust 
the person that has uh, more credibility. So in that context, I guess it's much more difficult uh, to criticise the government uh, when it when it's led by the CMO. Now that the government has changed and it is uh, wrestling control from the chief medical officer and making the decisions themselves, it opens itself up to being uh, more criticised uh, by opposition politicians. And um, so that there is a danger there. And obviously also, given that uh, the, the rally does eventually wear off, in all cases, the Falklands, the, the 2001... Um, uh, 9-11 and the Iran- Iranian hostage crisis, all these kind of rallies do eventually wear off. And the longer we get since the initial outbreak, the more people will be more inclined towards criticising the government. And in this case now, it's obviously Michal Martin who will face the, the public criticism and might find himself like like Banco's ghost, you know, um, sort of ruining the absence of Leo Reicher to kind of... Uh, uh, take the centre stage, or in fact, perhaps Michael Martin will find uh, himself uh, very successfully managing the whole thing. Um, who knows? Very, very, very significant political challenge for uh, for the government in terms of the decisions it makes on this over the the next week. But the last government was seen as having handled and polls are very clear on this. She has very high approval rating for how the government handled uh, the pan uh, the pandemic. Um you know, if there is a second wave and we are looking again at some form of a reintroduction of a lockdown, that would be very difficult for this government to manage, wouldn't it? Kevin, go ahead. Yeah. In uh, late February, I, I went on a radio show and uh, I was talking about government formation. And then there was a bit about coronavirus. So I said something mm-hmm. about the coronavirus on that. And it was just coming from Mark uh, Lipsitch in Harvard, who had said that most of the world would get this or half the world could get this thing. Anyway, uh, it was met with some shock. And yeah, it certainly shocked me when when, when I read it. Um but it, it kind of, the, the kind of shock sort of almost made me think, geez, I better go back and have a look at this and look at this in a little bit more detail. So I did. So I, I built uh, what's called a, a Bayesian model. It's a standard sort of model in epidemiology. I'll be honest, I, I, I'm no epidemiologist, but I did uh, take an interest in Oxford when we had those sorts of modules. That's all I did, really. Uh, swine flu occurred that year and... Uh, my great-grandmother and her baby, in fact, died uh, in the Spanish flu. So I kind of had this little interest in it. Um, but anyway, so I, I went back and I built this uh, little model of susceptibles, infected, and recoveries. It basically just breaks up the, the population into three different groups, or, or more, in fact, as it gets more complicated, and uh, looks at the progress as people move from one group to the next. Now, at the start of something like this, if there's very few people who have recovered, then clearly the the uh, exponential growth, the kind of the, the virus will grow relatively quickly at the start. So that to me uh, was a concern. I became uh, more anxious about it as the government said that there's no concerns over um, Cheltenham, uh, that there was no reason to cancel St. Patrick's Day, no plans to limit large gatherings. And it was in a containment phase, and maybe in a couple of weeks we might move to a mitigation phase. Now, in early March, that made me quite anxious. So, you know, the seeds, I think, of the eventual 1,700 or however many excess deaths we have now, um, were were rooted really in, in what happened at that time. Obviously, there would be a lot more 
if we didn't, uh, if if the government didn't take such um, action on March 12th in particular. Um, uh, but it's worth noting in retrospect that the difference really between Ireland and the UK is that space of the timing, that, that difference of a week, say. You know, the Google uh, mobility data shows how uh, by March 17th, by St. Patrick's Day, uh, we were at ha- like our mobility, that is the extent to which um, using the, the location data of people's phones, the extent to which people are going in and out of shops, going to parks and so on has fallen. So in Ireland, that had fallen to 50% by St. Patrick's Day. In the UK, it took until March 24th, so a week later. So that kind of gap, and, and bear in mind that it probably arrived in the UK just slightly er, earlier than, than Ireland, that kind of gap obviously created more seeds and, and a much bigger problem than when uh, when lockdown event had eventually occurred and things had shut down in the UK. It, they had to deal with a much bigger problem. I guess coming back to your original question about uh, the the decisions to be made now, uh, I think, you know, my gut, I guess, is more than anything else, is that perhaps the foreign travel is a risk that might not be worth taking. Um, If you look at uh, the extent of mobility in Ireland uh, today, uh, we're not, we have a lot more activity in Ireland than than there is going on in the UK, but we're still a lot lower um, in terms of how much activity is going on uh, relative to places like Texas and Italy, where uh, certainly in Texas, things have kind of shot back up. Um, so I think, you know, that obviously justifies the, the relative relaxation of of uh, lockdown measures. But at the same time, you know, it, it, it's right and proper for people to be kind of cautious, given what's happening in the US. Um it's also important to know that at this point, certainly at the start of this, we were all dealing with kind of quite messy data. And, and that's really kind of where I kind of come in, in that political data, which is what I've used now for the last couple of years. I mean, my background is a statistician, but I've moved into politics mainly because I think that's just a bit more interesting than stats for stats sake. But uh, messy data uh, is is kind of tricky um, to, to use. You're trying to find what what is... What is going on? What, what, what are the little nuggets of truth that we can understand to kind of build a broader picture um, of, of what's, what's happening? Uh, now, right now, the, the government has, has excellent data, certainly the data that it started to gather on the number of contacts people have. So when someone has a, a case, it can see how many people that person has met in that given week. And that can give an estimate of, of how uh, potentially virulent uh, the virus is. So that's... That's basically where they are. And, and, and <clears throat> I certainly would uh, put my faith in the uh, government at this point, certainly the chief medical officer. Uh, would, they would certainly have more uh, available data. One of the more interesting things of recent days, I think, has been Tony Houlihan quite firmly establishing a position on travel restrictions. And the previous government in its, in its final week or two was clearly signalling that it was going to move towards Airbridges, set a date for them of July the 9th, which is the next week or so. But Tony Houlihan's statements in the last three or four days have made it abundantly clear that he is not comfortable with this. And I wonder, is, you know, Kevin's right there, there was an element of the politicians taking back control in the last weeks of the previous government. Is Tony Houlihan putting a marker down with the new government to say, I am not comfortable with this. 
if you go ahead with it, it is entirely on your shoulders. And it is a huge call for this government to make in its first two weeks for the new Taoiseach Michal Martin and his new Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, as to what they do. Because I can't remember, whereas Tony Houlihan at times you know, gave, you know, he, he, he disagreed with the Taoiseach on, the, on, I think, on the schools opening up at one point, but it was more, you know, subtle when he was given his reservations. But what he's done over the last few days has really laid a marker down that he does not want this to happen. And the consequences, if it goes wrong, if this, if the opening up of the country, if flights from a, a country lead to kind of spikes in infections here, the responsibility will be entirely with the politicians. They have no shield of the CMO anymore. It's a very big call for the government to make, Fiac, in its first two weeks of, of in office. It, it, it absolutely is. And what he, it, it always was going to be so. And that's why it wasn't taken by the previous government, I think, because they left this decision and the decision on the, uh, I think, the uh, contact tracing app, I think, uh, to, this, to this government, knowing that it would have to be made by a government with a, a majority, a more democratic mandate, a dull mandate. Um, just that I, but it has changed since Tony Hulan made those statements. Like you wouldn't be surprised now if it was delayed. It's just such a big call to make. But in saying that, after the cabinet meeting on Monday or Tuesday at this weekday's bleeding to short moment, I think it was Monday, um, Eamon Ryan said we can't shut down the country forever. You know, we have a common travel area through the UK, we have an open border. So perhaps the politicians are moving in that way anyway, no matter what Tony Hulan says. Okay, well, that decision, uh, I I understand, is likely to be made by the Cabinet next Monday. There's a Cabinet committee meeting uh, about a COVID committee meeting uh, on on Friday. So perhaps we'll know more about it uh, at that stage. Um, The clock has caught up with us. So that's all for this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to our guests today, Fia Kelly, our Deputy Political Editor, and Kevin Cunningham from TU Dublin and from UCD. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. So goodbye for now and thanks very much for listening.